Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the... Is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, it's Metal 101. Jim and I give you a primer on rock's heaviest genre. Plus, we'll review the new collaboration between Brian Eno and David Byrne. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Not everybody wants to rule the world, it seems, but uh, Live Nation sure does. Uh, Live Nation, of course, the biggest touring promoter in the world at the moment. Certainly in North America, they have completely dominated the North American touring market for the last decade or so. They've also made major inroads in Europe and Asia, and now they have made a major move on the South American market by entering into a partnership with the largest Latin American concert promoter, CIE. CIE is the powerhouse in Latin American concerts. They pulled in over a billion dollars last year in tour revenue, and their their margins were like 21%. You're saying, well, why why would CIE need Live Nation if they're making that kind of money? Well, what they want from Live Nation is these exclusive deals that Live Nation has created with major superstars, you know, the Jay-Zs and the Madonnas and the Neil Youngs of the world. And uh, they want a regular flood of that kind of talent into the Latin American market, so they both can benefit, apparently. But what it says, Jim, is that Live Nation, which is already a behemoth, already going into its own ticketing business starting next year, yeah. has just gotten bigger. Well, yeah, you know, the irony here is, Greg, we, we have Live Nation in Chicago. There is a vibrant Latin music scene in Chicago. None of those shows are ever promoted by Live Nation. This is not going to be about indigenous Latin American music. This is going to be about, you know, bringing poison to Brazil. Yeah, Woo! it's a more homogenized approach. The world concert scene is going to look alike everywhere you go, whether you're in Rio or Chicago or Barcelona, you know, the yeah. same shows are going to be playing with the same exorbitant the Mc- ticket prices. The McDonaldization of the concert world. Every 
Greg, that is a song called Delivery Man by uh, Chicago's up-and-coming hip-hop duo Cool Kids. Really cool, young, old-school rappers. This is brought to you by Mountain Dew. We cover a lot of these stories, okay? It seems increasingly like the corporate world wants to get into the music business, although we've also seen some corporations pulling out, like Starbucks folding up its label. Now uh, Pepsi-owned Mountain Dew is getting into the business with a label called Green Label Sound. Download only. Its first release is this new song, Delivery Man, by Cool Kids, who have gotten a lot of hype. You'll be hearing more about them this year. The ironies here are that Pepsi, which owns Mountain Dew, as I said, has famously had tons of trouble in in trying to get into bed with pop stars. You remember Michael Jackson setting himself on fire during Mm -hmm. filming a Pepsi commercial. They had trouble with Madonna ticking off Catholics. They had trouble (laughs) with Kanye West and wound up dropping all of them. That's, That's irony number one. Irony number two is Again, you know, how cool is it to release a record for a soda pop label? The cool kids were pretty eloquent in making their defense. Chuck English, one of the, one of the duo, said uh, Mountain Dew is not trying to push their product through music like everybody else. They just want to support music. On the other hand, the cover of this single, Delivery Man, is that, that phosphorescent green and bright red that is <laughs> yeah. the Mountain Dew color. I'm sitting here with a bottle of Diet Mountain Dew, Didn't and it looks... To- just like the Cool Kids record. Then they used to call that subliminal advertising back in your uh, classes in college. Here's the message. You're, we're not going to spell it out for you, but if you can't get it, you're an idiot. <laughs> I, you know, every time I think I'm I'm immune to being shocked by any of this, you know, something comes on like the Kraft salad dressing commercial <laughs> with the flaming lips, yeah, 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 and I just want to jump off my roof. Yeah. You know, Jim, increasingly we are doing stories along these lines and we are appalled at the level Uh, that this has gone to. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about Chris Brown folding a jingle for a chewing gum company into one of his songs that is being played on national radio. At the same time, you do interviews with some of these artists. I just spoke to Amy Mann, who's uh, considered one of the great proselytizers for free music on the Internet or or getting your music Mm -hmm. directly to the consumer through the Internet. And she's saying, I don't make money off record sales anymore. I don't even break even on tours anymore because I have to pay my band. The only way I make money now is through licensing my songs. In other words, I sell it to some kind of a a movie or a TV commercial or uh, some kind of a jingle on on radio, and that's the way I make my money. Well, I'm an Amy Mann fan, but that just doesn't make sense because there are plenty of bands that are making a really good living from touring, you know, and she just paid her band members too much or something. I guess, but at the same time, it seems to be increasingly that unless you do touring at a relatively modest level, for example, the the cool kids, it's basically two, two, of them and two a guys DJ. and a DJ, yeah. so it's, it's fairly stripped down, and they will make some money on the road. But, you know, they've been making their music available on MySpace for a couple of years. They're probably not getting a lot of income through through record sales. This is the third option, and right now it appears to be the most lucrative option for a lot of artists out there. This is the end. That's the Doors, of course, when they really were the Doors. Jim Morrison was the lead singer. He's, uh, he was alive back then to sing that song. <laughs> he wasn't alive in 2003 when a band calling itself the Doors in small print of the 21st century went on on tour. That was uh, two former Doors members, Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger, with a ringer as the lead vocalist and Ian Asbury of the cult. One former member of the Doors didn't buy into it at all. That was John Densmore, the drummer who sued his former bandmate, saying you cannot call yourself the doors it's false advertising you owe me money you owe the estate of jim morrison some money this case has been winding its way through the court system for the last five years jim and the california supreme court finally refused to take up the case which means that densmore and the estate of jim morrison is about to win five million dollars from manzarek and krieger 
You know, I think that that's kind of noble in a way. Densmore is a man of principle. He pointed out that in 1970, the Doors got into a huge argument about uh, Light My Fire going to a Buick commercial. Morrison was against it. He was against any sort of commercialization. I am not the world's biggest Morrison fan. I think that if Morrison was alive today, he'd be like the Robert Bly of of the rock world, you know, this big fat guy doing manly man poetry. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, Densmore is trying to stay true to the ideal of his former bandmate. A couple of years ago, General Motors wanted to buy Light My Fire for $15 million yeah. for Cadillac, yep. and Densmore said no, and they couldn't go through with it. And then Apple wanted to buy uh, another song, and he said no. So this is a guy who, who I, I doubt that John Densmore is living in a mansion right now, but he, he wants to stay true to his art, unlike you know the cool kids and everybody else in the universe. Meanwhile, Manzarek and Krieger made out pretty well on that tour, uh, $8 million dollars. They grossed, uh, netted $3.2 million, which went to some company called Doors Touring, Inc., none of which went to uh, Densmore or the Morrison Estate. Well, he's going to get it all now. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, darling, go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, and that, of course, is the immortal sound of Born to be Wild Hmm. by Steppenwolf. 1968, Greg, that hit. The first documented use, I believe on record of the phrase heavy metal. Heavy metal thunder they're singing about. But they were singing about it in the sense of a biker rally and the sound of all those Harley engines. Mm -hmm. Obviously, bikers and bikes are part of the heavy metal sound, but not everything. When we talk about a genre, you have to... It's kind of interesting to look at where the name came from when you're really trying to understand. And and first of all, like, what is a genre, you know? Right. Everybody knows heavy metal, even people who never listen to it. They have an idea in their heads of what heavy metal is. What we wanted to do with this segment is really look at where it came from and what those touchstone bands in this sound are and how that's being perpetuated now, you know, nearly four decades later. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we think about rock and roll, rock and roll came from something, you know? It came from blues. It came from country. There are a bunch of influences in there, some gospel music. Heavy metal came from hard rock music, you know, the hardest edge of the rock spectrum. To my mind, it was it's the music of more, more bass, more volume, more violence, more theatricality, less blues, more Wagner. That's, that's mm. another way of looking at it. I think, which is another way of saying, uh, you know, less primitivism, more chops. Mm-hmm. People in heavy metal bands know how to play. Absolutely, and I think it's also one of the reasons why a lot of the, the quintessential heavy metal bands, uh, when, when we talk about the start of that genre, late 60s, early 70s, a lot of them happened to come from Europe and, and the UK specifically. And I think there was more of a European influence seeping into rock and roll, whereas most of the influences in rock and roll up until that point had been very much uh, Southern and American. The blues influence was very was paramount in rock and roll. And I think when it started to turn into heavy metal, those European bands started bringing in a lot of those Euro-classical influences and getting some of the blues out of there. Well, I know the reason for that, Greg. Drugs. Yeah. You know, you, you can't talk about the birth of heavy metal without talking about the psychedelic explosion of 66, 67, 68 mm-hmm. in, in the United States and in Britain as well. The psychedelic movement, when people started dropping acid or pretending that they did when they made records that sounded that strange and otherworldly, you know, it blew out the doors. You know, you could bring in any influence. You could bring in Eastern music, other different world beats. And one of the things you could do is take that basic blues drive and begin to bring it into strange places. As I said, Steppenwolf sang about heavy metal thunder in 68, but the real birth of heavy metal seems to have happened about 70, 71. It wasn't heavy metal when Steppenwolf sang it. Mm -hmm. Neither was it metal yet when some of the bands I'm going to talk about were making it. Early on in Detroit, you know, when you had bands like the Stooges and the MC5, it was veering into metal. They were taking the basic blues riff. They were really amplifying it. They they were, you know, everything was more high octane as befits the Motor City. And with that psychedelic edge. Music. 
Similarly, in San Francisco, you had Blue Cheer, classic album, Vincibus Eruptum, you know, <laughs> and taking uh, Summertime Blues, the Eddie Cochran song, and bringing that into whole, you know, some other terrain. They were named after one of Owsley's most potent brands of LSD that the <laughs> chemist had cooked up. You know, but it was still basically a blues rock trio, much like Jimi Hendrix. He's often been called a metal progenitor. Right. But it wasn't really metal yet, and there's much more soul and blues and a lot of jazz in mm-hmm. what Hendrix was doing. You even hear what's becoming heavy metal on Abbey Road when John Lennon gives you uh, She's So Heavy. Yeah. It's there right in the song title, mm-hmm. and it's got that, that one of the hallmarks of metal, that pounding, heavy, heavy, slow beat. She's so Let's not forget uh, Helter Skelter, too, another Beatles track that I think uh, laid the groundwork for metal. Oh, absolutely, Greg. My favorite scholar on the subject is a a professor uh, of sociology based here in Chicago. Dina Weinstein wrote a great book, Heavy Metal, A Cultural Sociology. She spent years and years and years. Dina's the sort of person who is in the mosh pit, Mm -hmm. you know, in the thick of it. Spent years and years trying to get to the bottom of where exactly the genre came to be called heavy metal. She never never divided. As early as 71, there was a writer in Cream magazine who used the phrase, to describe a Sir Lord Baltimore album. It was not Lester Bangs. Mm-hmm. He's often given credit, but he didn't coin the term heavy metal. It was a guy named Mike Saunders, went on to be called Metal Mike Saunders. And Dina was unable to get to where was the first heavy metal record? What was the first time it was used? It's a debate that metal fans are going to always have. I'll give you my choice, though, okay. okay? As I said, I think that this this period of psychedelia into blues and and then ramping everything up another, you know, pushing it to 11, if you will. That's the key and where metal begins. I'm going to talk about Hawkwind Mm -hmm. and the song Silver Machine. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good choice for the first great actual heavy metal as opposed to hard rock or anything else song for a couple of reasons. You know, Hawkwind was a space rock band. They were were too clumsy, basically, to be a great psychedelic rock group. Mm -hmm. They were taking psychedelic rock drugs and they were singing about journeying to outer space, you know, outer and inner space, you know, psychedelic <laughs> and interstellar overdrives. But, you know, their bass player, who had been a roadie for the Hendrix Trio, did you know that? Lemmy Kilmeister, he was a little bit of a problem guy in the band. A little bit, yeah. everybody else was taking LSD, but Lemmy took speed. Yeah. So this guy is speeding off his gourd, the other guys are tripping, and, and it wasn't meshing, and eventually he got kicked out of the band, went on to form a group called Motorhead, mm-hmm. okay? But while he was still in Hawkwind, he wrote this song, Silver Machine, it's a classic. Listen to the way the bass drives the song. It's got to be said, the guitar gets all the press in heavy metal, but there is no good heavy metal band yeah. without a killer bassist. You know, listen to the way the bass drives this song. What is the silver machine? I mean, you know, this is an homage to this great mechanical heavy metal, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. I don't know what Lemmy's talking about. I don't really want to know, I don't think. But it's heavy. It's metal. I think this is song number one. Hawkwind's Silver Machine on Sound Opinions.
That is the mighty Silver Machine by Hawkwind, one of the key tracks in heavy metal's development. We'll continue our trip back to the dawn of metal in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later, Greg and I will review the latest collaborative album from David Byrne and Brian Eno. Didn't have to twist our arms to do that one. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking about the early days of heavy metal. What you're hearing right now is a song from 1986, Metallica's Master of Puppets, one of the great heavy metal tracks. And there was no doubt uh, what kind of a band Metallica is or what kind of a track that is. That is, of course, heavy metal. But back in the late 60s, bands like Hawkwind, who, who Jim just played, we're defining a sound that really hadn't been named yet. Nobody really knew what this was. It was a critical time for the genre, Jim, where a lot of this stuff started to edge toward that extreme area where now we look back and we go, oh, yeah, that's heavy metal. But back then, they, these people were experimenting. They, were, they weren't quite sure what they were getting themselves into, but it was clearly new territory. And I think that was the case with Led Zeppelin on their debut album in 69, the self-titled record. You know, I talk to Robert Plant now, and he wants to slap you if you bring up heavy metal and Led yeah, Zeppelin in yeah, the yeah, same yeah. sentence. You know, we, we have nothing to do with heavy metal. The larger point there is that, yes, they were pretty wide screen. They were doing a lot of different things. They were doing acoustic stuff. They were doing Indian ragas. They were doing blues. And, yes, there was this harder edge rock sound that they had. But there's no denying that a song like Dazed and Confused from that first record sure. laid the groundwork for a lot of metal bands. And you mentioned the bass earlier, and John Paul Jones's bass introduction to the song alone sets a sort of subterranean template for how a bass should sound on a heavy metal record. I mean, a lot of metalheads say, no, Zeppelin really wasn't. You know, they were hard rock. Right. Or they were almost, it's almost like saying the Beatles were a rock and roll band. Yeah. I mean, the Beatles are just the Beatles, right? Right. Led Zeppelin has become just Led Zeppelin. But then you will still talk to that diehard Disfear fan or Cannibal Corpse fan who's the greatest metal drummer of all time, let's say John Bonham. John Bonham, yeah. Well, I don't know. If he was a metal drummer, then he was might have been a metal band. With that sort of, uh, you know, faux castrato operatic range of his, that set a template for countless metal vocalists. I mean, you don't have Rob Halford of Judas Priest if you don't have Robert Plant going for those yeah. notes he had no business going for. So there, there was a range to the vocals, high-end extreme, low-end extreme. That, to me, the music of extremes, heavy metal, Led Zeppelin was forging the blueprint in 1969. And virtuosity, four virtuoso players. Absolutely. 
Now, the next year, I think that was the key year, 1970. I think you can plot out a case for a number of albums coming out in that year, all of them in England, that really set the stage for what heavy metal was going to sound like. And I think a number one was was Black Sabbath with its 1970 self-titled record. The very first notes from the very first song, yeah. the very first Black Sabbath record. That's it. That's yeah. the sound right there. whether Led Zeppelin was, was heavy metal or not. But there's no debating. You know, Black Sabbath is, is ground zero. They're patient number one. Yep. Here was the end of the hippie era. If, if it hadn't ended before that, it ended here. These guys were having hippies for lunch. What is this that stands before me? It was not a pretty music. There were satanic occult overtones throughout this music. What is this that stands before me? Yeah, you know, yeah. Ozzy Osbourne staring out at this figure the bell of death pointing at him in a field. And right. he is scared witless. Right. And, you know, you talk to those guys now, and, and they were just huge horror movie fans. The bassist for Black Sabbath, Geezer Butler, who wrote many of the lyrics for the band, went to see The Exorcist countless times. Apparently there's a legendary story about him just sitting in the movie theater and seeing like, you know, 12 screenings in a row of right, The right, Exorcist right. and just being totally imbued with this idea. That's what we need to be. That's how we set ourselves apart from all these other blues rock heavy bands coming out of England at the time. And well, they created you, a new sound and a new vision for that sound. Zeppelin still had the hippy-dippy flower power, you know? I got my flower, I got my power, yep. I got my woman to love. Yep. Sabbath wasn't, you know, nobody wanted to love them. They were ugly, working-class guys from Birmingham, yep. you know, middle of nowhere. They had no hope, they had no chance, but this music was their salvation. But they weren't singing about salvation, they were singing about damnation. Yep. Yep. Uh, they were they, Like the great bluesmen, they were finding catharsis in reveling in the dark side. Absolutely, and uh, the riff was king, but it was slower and more ominous than it ever had been before. And Tony Iommi was the guy who forged that sound. Those first four Black Sabbath records laid that foundation. But I think there was a couple other records, Jim, in 1970 besides the Black Sabbath debut that really set the tone for what metal was going to sound like. I hope you're going to Deep Purple. Deep Purple, without a doubt. You know, before this, Deep Purple had been around for a while. And they'd put out a couple of records. I mean, they were pr probably best known at this point for that song, Hush. Right. Uh, it was, it was a Britpop invasion, you know, yeah. British invasion hit. Hush, hush. I thought I heard a call in my a little bit of psychedelia in there, but nothing new. The new sound came along with In Rock, their 1970 record. That's when they really forged this new sound. And you listen to a track like Speed King from that record, this long opus where Ian Gillen, by the way, Ian Gillen, right? What's the trivia about him? He was Jesus Christ Superstar. He was, Jesus he was Christ the voice Superstar. of Christ, yeah. Exactly. He was the, before it went to Broadway, before it became a movie, it was actually an album, and they asked Ian Gillen to play the role of Christ in yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar. That guy had a tremendous voice. But what was great about this band, in addition to Gillen, was A, John Lord with these gothic, doomy organ chords over the top of Richie Blackmore's guitar. And you combine those elements, and you had this amazing boogie band that morphed into something darker and more sinister on the in-rock record. And I think Speed King is a great example of what they were doing.
by the time you get to their classic Machine Head album, again, they are, you know, it's beginning to be this sound that's embracing certain things. Black, you got to wear all black. Sabbath yeah. gave us that. You want to be on the dark side. Sabbath gave us that. But also the, the love of Machine that had been there from Steppenwolf, mm-hmm. right? right? You know, we are going to embrace big, ugly, clanking, smoking, horrible, polluting <laughs> machines. Deep Purple singing about space trucking and a highway star, you yeah. know? Even in the beauty, there's this kind of ugliness. The other thing that I uh, wanted to mention from 1970, you mentioned Dina Weinstein, one of the great heavy metal scholars alive. The other one that I would like to pay tribute to is Martin Popoff, uh, Mm. this writer from Canada, who's written many great books about heavy metal. And I talked to him at length about his love for Uriah Heep. And I finally come around to accepting his idea that Uriah Heep belongs right in that metal pantheon, especially for what they were doing in 1970 with the record, uh, their self-titled record. Actually, it was self-titled in the U.S., but in uh, Europe it was known as Very Evy very humble, <laughs> which is more heavy, heavy metal as, as far as heavy, very heavy. heavy, yes. And it was heavy. And um, again, that organ played a big part in it. Uh, Ken Hensley on, on the keyboards and uh, overlaying that keyboard sound over the top of this relentless bass line. I don't think you really heard a bass line like this in hard rock until Uriah Heep got to the song Gypsy. It was really a prototype for Nine Inch Nails. I mean, it was yeah. literally that driving, almost industrial sound. If you can imagine that projected 20 years into the future, you get Nine Inch Nails. I was only 17. I fell in love with a gypsy queen. She told me, hold on. Father was the leading man. Said, you're not welcome on our land. Then as a foe, he told me to go. Then I think, Jim, you got to go to Judas Priest. They started out in 1969, but they didn't start really releasing music till about four or five years later. But they were contemporaries of Sabbath and, and Uriah Heep and Deep Purple and these bands that were coming out of the UK in the late 60s. When they finally got around to recording, though, they I think they took metal in a new direction that set the bar a little higher for a lot of the bands that we would hear coming out of California in the United States in the early 80s. And I'm talking right. about like Slayer, Metallica, Megadeth. Right, as well as, well as what the Priest. English called the new wave of heavy metal, Absolutely. which is the second generation of those bands. No doubt about it. I think Judas Priest got there first. And as I was listening to this track recently again, it struck me that even somebody like Jane's Addiction was listening to these guys at this stage. I mean, you can't tell me there's not a little bit of Perry Farrell, a little bit of early Jane's in, mm-hmm. in what, what Judas Priest was doing. So they influenced a lot of bands at this stage in their career. They were the transitional band between that early heavy metal sound when it was still not quite certain what it was, and now we definitely had something called heavy metal, and Judas Priest really embodied it, right down from to Rob Halford, riding out on stage in that belching Harley yeah, with, yeah. with the leather studs on him. Mean, he was totally embracing this theatricality that was coming into metal. And those early Judas Priest records, they're not as well known as some of the later stuff like Breaking the Law and songs that sort of made their reputation almost as a radio presence in the early 80s. But I think the stuff that they did in the mid-70s was was more influential. Oh, those are my favorite, yeah. Glenn Tipton and K.K. Downing, first of all, he had that double guitar thing going on in Mm -hmm. this band. And that was a key sound for heavy metal. I mean, you know, let's do it more. Let's double it up. Instead of one guitar, let's have two guitars. Not not just one virtuoso, but two (laughs) running up and down the neck nonstop. And you can hear it on this song I want to highlight. It's called Victim of Changes, a a live version of a track that appeared on their Sad Wings of Destiny record from 76. That's a key metal album from that mid-period of the genre, and this is a key track from that album. Victim of Changes by Judas Priest on Sound Opinions.
victim of changes by the mighty Judas Priest. You know, Greg, just a couple things to point out. You, you, we mentioned two rock academics, Popoff and Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, for a music that's allegedly stupid, more brilliant examinations in academia and in rock writing have been written about heavy metal yeah. than virtually any other genre. I think one of the things people don't understand is that while there's a certain primal simplicity, it's about feeling rather than head. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that it's stupid. Right. You have to feel a heavy metal band. You know, if you're not standing in front of the amps and feeling the bass drum rattling your chest mm-hmm. and, and, and your rib cage is shaking with the guitar solo and the bass, you're not really getting it, right? But there's also something happening behind the scenes. Even though it may, we can make fun of it and Spinal Tap did it immortally, the heavy metal world remains divided. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Most of the great metal heads I know can laugh at themselves. Yeah. And they can recognize the truth in that. Well, that that's true. And I think also the subject matter, a lot of people rip metal as, as kind of inane, but I, I think they misread a lot of the lyrics. I think, in fact, a lot of the metal songs, the best metal songs, have a sort of timelessness about them. You can perform these songs with some dignity when you're in your 50s, you know? Well, it's and, absolutely true. Sabbath is still, you know, when, when they're all in a good mood, mm-hmm. you know, Sabbath today is still great. Without a doubt, look at Lemmy from Motorhead, for example. There's a guy who's going to die with his boots on. Yeah. And he's not going to look silly. In fact, he's still going to be the scariest guy in the room. Because they are singing about subject matter that goes beyond your traditional sex, love, rock and roll template. Yeah. Uh, this is stuff that has sort of a timeless quality to it. They're talking about the dark side of life. They're talking about war. They're talking about mayhem. They're talking about violence. They're talking about being scared witless about what's going on in the world. Well, and also just the joy of sometimes sticking your head inside a blender. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or sometimes you just have to be stupid once in a while. (laughs) Without a doubt. The amazing thing about metal is that everybody thought it was going to die any second. I mean, it has no lifespan at all. And the beauty of it, it is like a cockroach. It just keeps coming back. And it continues to breed subgenres after subgenres. Well, it's Jim. mutating. That's the thing. <laughs> you know, think about thrash and speed metal, which was the big innovation after that first wave of metal with uh, Priest and Motorhead coming into the game and the, and the new wave of British metal influencing bands like Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth. Then you had the offshoot from that death metal. Uh, Slayer introducing the macabre imagery and all these Florida bands sprouting up deicide and death and morbid angel, you know, yeah. creating uh, that sound. Then you had an offshoot of that in Sweden with more melody introduced, uh, a melodic death metal with in flames and dark tranquility. You had the grindcore movement in the UK with napalm death. You had black metal, which those uh, Nordic countries dominated mm-hmm. for so long. Well, let's uh, not forget hair metal as much as I'd like to. Uh, no, but it, you know, it actually brought it to a new commercial level in the 80s. A lot of people associate uh, their rite of passage into rock and roll with those hair metal bands that were the boon and the bane of MTV in the late 80s, you know, from the Motley Crues to the Wingers and, and the Warrants. Right. Then you had the doom goth metal genre with the Obsessed and St. Vitus and Candlemass. And, of course, stoner metal, one of our favorite uh, genres, you know, with Caius and Monster Magnet and this band that we're going to play next. It really brings us back full circle. We started with, you know, blues taking too many psychedelic drugs and turning it into metal. <laughs> I think that's what High on Fire is doing, one of our favorite groups from the metal underground in the last couple of years. We're going to play uh, Death is This Communion, the title track off of High on Fire's 2007 album. And when we return after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Greg and I will rate the new album from Brian Eno and David Burns.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Strange Overtones from the new collaboration by David Byrne and Brian Eno. Everything that happens will happen today. Greg, we've been waiting 27 years for this. <laughs> Byrne and Eno first made an album together in 1981 called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Brian Eno was already then a very established English producer. He had been a part of Roxy Music. He had gone on to make a series of extraordinary solo albums, and now he was starting to work with other bands. Most famously, and best of all for his paycheck, he's produced a lot of records by U2 of late and the new Coldplay record, but he began working with the Talking Heads after that first album, they emerged as a very Spartan, minimalist art rock band as part of the CBGB scene, and then he took them somewhere else entirely, including to Africa. You know, the reason the Talking Heads became a big band, 11, 12 pieces on stage doing African rhythms, was largely, people said, because of what Eno got burned listening to. In the midst of all that, they made that first album together. My Life in the Bush of Ghosts was largely ambient instrumentals, as Eno was doing in his solo work, with snippets of shortwave radio from around the globe, weird little pseudo-proto samples, you know. I mean, they were just spitting the radio dial until they found something interesting. Today, people would do that with digital sampling. Broke a lot of ground in a lot of ways, and then they went their separate ways. Now they're back together. There's a quote I want to tell you about before we get into playing this, and then we'll come back and give our ratings, as always. Tina Weymouth, the bassist of the Talking Heads, I think kind of resented the friendship and collaboration of Byrne and Eno. She had a famous quote after Eno began enifying the talking heads. <laughs> she said, you know, they're going to wind up in an old age home. David Byrne, Brian Eno, and David Bowie. We talked about <laughs> the Eno-Bowie con connection last week when we talked to uh, Tony Visconti. The three of these guys are going to wind up on the porch of an old age home in their rockers with no <laughs> other friends but each other because no one else is as smart as they are. Is that true? What has it yielded? Let's hear a track from Everything That Happens Will Happen Today. This is a song called Life Is Long on Sound Opinions. Long on Sound Opinions from the new Brian Eno, David Byrne record, Everything That Happens Will Happen Today. Jim, as you mentioned, three decades since these two worked together, and uh, unlike anything they've ever done before, I think this is a, a new direction for them. They worked, first of all, on separate continents. They emailed music back and forth, uh, Eno primarily responsible for the musical beds, Byrne primarily responsible for the lyrics and the singing. They've called this their electronic gospel record, yeah, which is an interesting characterization because nobody would think of David Byrne as a gospel singer. But I have to say this, even though he's uh, nowhere near in the class of somebody like a Mavis Staples, let's say, a classic gospel type singer, his vocals have never sounded better, yeah. uh, fuller, warmer, 
more confiding. He's become a really terrific singer o- over the years. And, and these melodies, these major key melodies that he's working in, allows him to really soar in a way that is a huge departure from the, that strangulated, intense style that he developed with the Talking Heads. The psycho killer burn, yeah. Exactly. But I think more to the point, when they talk about gospel, gospel music was a, a lot about facing hard times and getting through it, rising above seeing that there was a better world across the horizon, Mm -hmm. somewhere ahead. And I think that's the thematic thread that uh, cuts through this record. He's talking about a world in turmoil in a lot of these lyrics, and in a way the music is sort of abetting that, you know, the typical Eno-esque type of soundscapes where it's kind of undetermined as to what's making that weird sound in the background. Is that a percussion instrument? Is that a guitar? I don't understand. Yeah, so there's a lot of turmoil in this music, but at the same time there's these soaring melodies over the top, and Byrne is really singing his heart out. And in that song we just played, there's a key line, I think, that really kind of of, uh, links the all the songs in this record together. I'm lost, but I'm not afraid. Yeah, I yeah. can get through this. It's a beautiful, beautiful record, Jim. It's unlike anything they've done before. I'm totally blown away by David Byrne's singing on this. Eno brings his A-game in terms of the soundscapes. It's better than his work on the Coldplay, that's for sure. Buy it record. Well, I I will agree with you, Greg. On the patented sound opinions, buy it, burn it, trash it, scale, this is a buy it record. Now, I uh, have have somehow uh, earned the reputation of being the Eno superfan on this show, (laughs) and I guess I am, okay? But I will say my life in the bush of ghosts is mediocre, second rate, Mm -hmm. you know, both as burn music or as Eno music. And Eno is not infallible. His work on the new Coldplay record... Not very good. However, this is a sound he does extraordinarily well. I'll tell you the roots of it. In the early 90s, he did a recording of You Don't Miss Your Water Until Your Well Runs Dry, the gospel uh, traditional, which then kind of led to a collaboration between him and John Cale. Wrong Way Up in 1990, one of Eno's best albums, one of Cale's best albums. You don't miss your water Those two guys playing very similar roles with each other as Byrne and Eno do on this record. It's really nice to hear those guys in this mode. My only complaint would be that Eno isn't singing more because he is an extraordinarily wonderful singer. Mm-hmm. Not a great voice, but he does these things called vocal stacks, layers of harmonic right. vocals. He's doing that with Byrne, but he's not really adding a lot of his own voice. Nevertheless, this is a beginning to end great album, a double buy it from both of us. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. You remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and give you a song that we can't live without. Mr. Cott, it's your turn. What do you got? Thank you, Jim. My mind is uh, on a great drummer this week, uh, Buddy Harmon, who passed away at the age of 79, the guy who put Nashville drumming and country drumming on the map. You know, I think when we do this show, Jim, we try to spotlight some of the behind-the-scenes figures in, in music. You know, Hal Blaine in Los Angeles defined a certain style of drumming. Benny Benjamin at Motown uh, during the 60s with, uh, with all those classic hits for the Supremes and the Temptations. Al Jackson in Memphis with the Stax recording sessions. Those guys, if you went to Memphis or Motown or L.A., in the 60s and 70s, you were going to get one of those guys as a drummer on your record, and it yeah. was going to make your record sound great. Buddy Harmon did the same thing in Nashville. He was the A number one Nashville drummer in the 50s and 60s when country music moved into the modern era. And by that, I mean, you know, hit records for people like Patsy Cline, Roy Orbison, Loretta Lynn, Roger Miller. I mean, think about that drumming on Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. Yeah, you know, yeah. Smashing beat. You don't associate that as a typical country beat, but that was Buddy Harmon taking the the drum sound of Nashville into the rock and roll era. I mean, consider when he started playing drums in the early 50s. 
you couldn't even bring drums under the, into the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just not allowed. You well, didn't and, hear drums on a whole lot of country records. And as point. a result, a lot of what he mastered, Greg, was was real subtle stuff, like work with the brushes, where you're brushing the snare drum, or what they call a rim shot, where you're playing the wood of the stick against the metal of the rim of the drum. Absolutely. And he uh, he sort of invented this country shuffle beat uh, that became a standard for a lot of the records in that area. He played on over 18,000 records. Oh, Phenomenal. Man. Phenomenal. That's probably more music than we've reviewed. I would easily say so. Maybe more than we've even listened to. A phenomenal discography that this man has, and nobody really knows his name. But uh, I'm going to bring a little light to Buddy Harmon on the occasion of his death at the age of 79. Elvis Presley, a lot of people think, well, once he left the Army, Presley was essentially dead as an artist and really didn't resurface again until the late 60s. But I would argue that there was a, a bunch of records he made during that period that still warrant inclusion in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and one of them is the record that I'm going to play that had Buddy Harmon, of course, as the drummer on it. Uh, It's Little Sister. Uh, A couple of defining things on this record. It was recorded in 61, after he got out of the Army. Everyone thinks Elvis can't do it anymore. Elvis can't rock anymore. Well, this guitar riff by Hank Garland definitely brought him back into the the rock realm, and uh, Buddy Harmon's drumming on this song, of course, is fantastic. One of Elvis's greatest tracks, Little Sister, on Sound Opinions with Buddy Harmon on drums. Little sister, don't you? Little sister, don't you? Little sister, don't you kiss me once or twice Then say it's very nice and then you run Little sister, don't you do what your big sister done Well, I dated your big sister And I took her to a show I went for some candy Along came Jim Dandy And they snuck right out the door Little sister, don't you Little sister, don't you Little sister, don't you Kiss me once or twice And say it's very nice And then you run Little sister, don't you do What your big sister don't sister well she's got somebody new she's mean and she's evil like that little old boy evil guess i'll try my luck with you little sister don't you little sister don't you little sister don't you kiss me once or twice and say it's very nice and then you run Little Sister by Elvis Presley with Buddy Harmon on drums. Nice work, Mr. Cott. What do we got next week? Next week, Jim, we're going back to school. We've got a bunch of songs to get you in the mood for uh, going back to school. Some of the great songs written about higher and maybe lower education. (laughs) We've got some thank yous to say on our way out. Sound Opinions is produced by the Ace Team. Of Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Todd Bachman with interning help from Dylan Peterson. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, a man who is limping around now because he hurt himself in the mosh pit at the Knock Mystium show, <laughs> Tori Southside Malatia. Well, sister, don't you do what you big sister does. I was sleeping gently, napping when I heard the phone. Who is on the other end talking? Am I even home? On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. How sad and why do we call? Oh, I'm glad to hear from you all. New messages. Hey guys, love your show. Just listened to the uh, extended interview with Visconti, which was fantastic. One of your better shows lately. I wish you had gone into more on Gentle Giants. Two of the greatest concerts ever seen were at the Armadillo World Headquarters in uh, 1977, again 1980, and they're definitely, I think, one of the greatest bands ever, and hopefully you'll cover them more. Uh, This is Dan Eggleston from Austin, Texas. Thank you very much. See the world in the palm of his hand. 
striding steps that will cover the land. Hi, this is Bill Brzezinski from Homewood, Illinois. Just finished listening to your interview with Tony Viscani. Loved it. You mentioned even Gentle Giant. And then you go ahead and talk about Jonas Brothers. But that's what makes your show challenging. So thanks for a good show. Bye. Jessica from Northfield, Minnesota. I have just been sitting on the porch listening to your broadcast on The Current with the Jonas Brothers. And I listen to The Current all the time. And my daughter, who's nine and a half, is always horribly disgusted with the fact that I'm listening to The Current and you guys talking, and it's just horrifying. And then the Jonas Brothers come on. They gave us a little moment together. And then went into bubblegum. Well, my dad was born in 1941, and I listened to Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil, when I was a kid. And when I was younger, I got to listen to the Shangri-Las, Peppermint Twist, and Love Potion Number 9. So the tie-in with bubblegum, it all went together really, really nicely. So kudos. Kudos to you for giving us bubblegum news. Thank you very much. Hey guys, this is Libby from Minnesota, and so this, to start off your show, I was like really excited because my dad was listening to it, and he like hates the jar stories. And all of a sudden it came on, and I was like super pumped, and then you guys were like, oh yeah, they're, cool, they're a cool band, and everyone loves them, like seriously. But I was I was mad after that because you guys started bashing them, and you're like, they're not a band, blah, blah, blah. Okay, Instinct was not a band. They were like a little pop princess thing, and they just like danced around to like electronic beats, like jar stories, they played on the and like, and then you were just like, yeah, I trash that. This song is blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, like, they're on the top right now. Like, you can't just so start saying that because, like, people, like, will give you gas for that. So just, like, I like your show. Just, like, stop bashing JB because they're, like, amazing. Okay, bye. sky begins to shine. We're breaking Hi, my name is Francesca. And I'm Lexi, and we're from Chicago. Um, we heard your, your review of the new Jonas Brothers CD, and we totally agree. We're tired of girls running around being obsessed with these peppy dorks who have no musical knowledge at all. I think we may be the only teen girls who dislike them. We find it hard to believe that someone can make an album using voices that make them sound constipated and still get number one. We appreciate your review, and... Just because we're teen doesn't mean we have to have bad taste in music. You guys did a great job. And for every girl that, who resents what you had to say about the Jonas Brothers, there's another girl or boy that's thinking, Hallelujah! Finally, someone's seen the light. We love your show, and thanks for understanding that not all popular music is good. Bye, and thanks! No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.